If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. If you could ask a historian any question about the past, what would you want to know? That's the premise of the public historian Greg Jenner's new book, Ask a Historian which tackles 50 questions covering all kinds of areas and topics that people most want to know about. Greg joined us recently to talk about some of the questions he tackles, from whether people really ate powdered mummies to the historical figures he'd choose for an Ocean's Eleven-style heist, plus a few of those that he simply just couldn't answer. Putting the questions to Greg was our digital editor, Eleanor Evans, and she started off by asking him about the idea behind the book. I think, um, I don't know how other historians feel, but sometimes I feel like I am writing a book in the hope that people will be interested in what I have to say. You know, or if you're doing a podcast or you're giving a talk, you sort of, you hope people are showing up going, that sounds interesting. But the nice thing about writing a book where you're answering questions from the public is at least you've got 50 guaranteed sales at least the 50 people who've asked me the question will at least buy it but there is a um there is something nice certainly in my line of work you know, I'm, I'm a public historian that's the job title I like to use my whole sort of thing really is trying to find ways to speak with the public and find out what they'd like to know and and help them access history as a subject and and to not feel intimidated or scared or bored by it and so when you get questions from people, it's really nice because you get to respond and that's lovely. And you also get a little bit of a sort of an interesting, um, sometimes moving away from your natural uh, area of, you know, on, in this book, there have been some questions that put me out of my comfort zone. And I had to go, oh, hang on, I, 
I don't know. <laughs> I'd better go um, read up about it or even uh, take my own advice. And uh, the name of the book is Ask a Historian. And sometimes I did go and ask a historian to sort of help me answer. So it's been really nice actually to be able to respond. Um, ordinarily, I would have done this live with a audience in front of me um, while I was touring my previous book, Dead Famous. I would have talked about celebrity for 50 minutes and then I would have said, OK, and what else do you want to know? And then, you know, you do your best to answer on the spot. But I would have jotted down the questions, gone home, and that's how the book would have happened. But, of course, Dead Famous came out four days before a pandemic. And so I didn't get to do any events at all. I didn't get any questions. So we had to do them online. So people sent in hundreds of questions and then it became a question of like, okay, which are the best ones? Which ones are most enjoyable, the most surprising? Trying to find ways of grouping them into sort of thematic chapters. Um yeah, it's been fun, actually. So can you tell us a little bit more about whittling those down then, that, that process? how did Was there anything that came out of that process that um, made you think people really want to know this element of history or this element of how people lived? You know, what, what sort of things were going on there? Yes, we get a lot of questions about Anne Boleyn. Everyone's obsessed with Anne Boleyn, of course. So she is in the book. And it's always really interesting, isn't it? I think because to a certain extent, I think people who follow me on Twitter sort of know what my interests are. So I wonder if perhaps there is a sort of unspoken bias going on in the kinds of questions people are asking me that they might not ask a different historian who, you know, for example, they might ask Dan Snow something a bit more military and a bit more, you know, about castles and so on. So I probably get more questions about social history, cultural history, and I've spoken a few times in the past couple of years on my uh, ambition to do more global history and to, you know, it's not something I was trained in as a historian, as a student, as a master student. And so I've been trying to fill in the blanks a bit and, and to tackle China and Africa and, you know, more international stories. So I think it might be that people were responding also to my brand. Is that a word? I don't know. And were, you know, asking me things that I probably could answer. So that's first the first caveat out of the way. But saying that, yeah, there are some interesting patterns. There, there definitely was a fascination with food. I got several questions about the history of bread, the history of cheese. People were clearly hungry. Um, it's, <laughs> they were probably sitting at home watching Bake Off and thinking, I wonder who invented cakes? So one of my favourite questions in the book is about the history of meringues, which I, I love meringues. They're one of my favourite desserts when I was a kid. I used to eat hundreds of them. And that felt like quite a surprising question that, I think must have come out of some, yeah, TV watching fascination. But food definitely came up quite a lot. There was a lot of the standard sort of pop culture questions about movies and accuracy and, um, you know, favourite TV shows, favourite novels about historical periods, which is something I talk about quite a lot in my general line of work anyway. So that's, that's not unsurprising. Not so many military questions which again might be because I'm not Dan Snow. <laughs> He's much better on that than I am. And a kind of an interesting spread but quite a lot of medical quite a lot of quite a lot of questions that were sort of fact checking questions people saying my teacher told me this when i was 12 doesn't sound legit is it legit that sort of thing so it's been really nice to to kind of see where the patterns are there are some outlier questions that just come out of left field and you just go wow that's so the best question i got asked and i couldn't answer it was did anyone ever paint a fake tunnel on the side of a mountain in the hope of fooling someone into driving into it. And obviously that's just, in my head, that's Roadrunner. <laughs> and so I don't know whether Wiley Coyote sent me that question. I couldn't answer it. I went looking for it. I went looking for 
early Hollywood history and maybe Cecil B. DeMille had accidentally built something and someone had driven into it. I couldn't find anything. So I was very disappointed that couldn't go in the book. And I once got asked years ago by a child whether Jesus was sad that all the dinosaurs had died. And again, theologically, that was much too complicated for me. I just I don't have the, the training to tackle that kind of highbrow question asked from the mouth of babes, because actually that's a really tricky thing to ask. So yeah, there are questions that are straightforward and you kind of go, oh yeah, I know what that is. That's easy. There are some that are quite hard, but I know where to start. And then there, there were some questions that I just, I stared at them and went, I, I don't even know how to do this one. I'm going to have to admit defeat. So it's fun. It's a fun process. Surprisingly fun. I thought it would be harder. It's actually been quite an easy book to write, and quite enjoyable to, to research as well. Yeah, it, it sounds really fun. And I guess something really positive as well is seeing how people maybe are still open to myth bust and to challenge what they were taught as children or to question that still. That must be quite a nice thing to to to, to hear about and write. Yeah, I think that's that's right. There is obviously quite an interesting we're living through quite interesting times in terms of conspiracy theories and people being resistant to new information part of the job of the historian obviously is to sort of wield evidence in you know you're trying to build a case and say well here's what we know and and here's what we don't know on the balance of probability this probably didn't happen and so from time to time it is nice to be able to myth bust sometimes it's nice to sort of go no that that did happen that genuinely did happen people really did eat corpse medicine in the 17th century i think the the most myth bustiest of the questions that i got i think probably was the atlantis one which i get a lot because i think the the concern i think for many historians certainly in america particularly this is a huge concern for lots of archaeologists and historians is that there's this enormous surge in belief in aliens, most notably, right? Uh, but also more importantly, in the belief that aliens built ancient monuments. And tied into that is also this wider fascination with Atlantis. And when you get into the history of Atlantis, the cultural history of it, where it starts, where it ends up, it's a sort of extraordinary story that is it's quite large, quite capacious, quite depressing in some ways. And so I try to sort of tackle it from a cultural history point of view, explaining that you begin with Plato and he's basically just trying to win an argument. And so he's made up the idea of Atlantis. It's not real, but he's just trying to sort of create a parable about why superpowers should be feared, but also, you know, the hubris gets to them and they tend to collapse and yada, yada. And from that, you then end up in a sort of fascinating kind of later history where because of the idea of Atlantis sort of permeated through the, the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, when... The New World was discovered in 1492 and, and thereafter, you know, you've got Cortez and so on going down into Central and South America. One of the first responses in Europe to this discovery of new lands to the West was, well, is that Atlantis? And that's a really weird thing to be asking because, you know, this is a brand new continent. And yet the first thing people are asking is, is it the story we heard about from you know, 1500 years ago? And so that's intriguing and then thereafter in the 19th century you get a whole other part of the question the, the conversation which is atlantis being tied to this idea of it being eden um ignatius donnelly making that argument and then you get helena blavatsky who starts to advance this idea that it's a sort of aryan uh, culture an aryan race uh, of of people with superior skills you know they've got superpowers almost and that then percolates into Germanic writing in the late 19th century into the early 20th century. Then you get Hans Herbinger and his world ice theory, or glacial cosmogony, as he called it, which is this bonkers theory that the universe was created from ice and that 
there had been this, yeah, fuel civilization or Atlantis, and they had been aliens from outer space, and they are the kind of ancestors of Jesus Christ, and that they were separate to Jewish people and African descended people and you know, gypsies, and so you then get this ancient Platonic ar- argument. You know, Plato has made up something to win an argument two thousand four hundred years ago. You end up with essentially the Nazi Third Reich regime using part of that to justify the cruelty of the Holocaust almost. And it's a sort of, it's a really weird story. And in in the book, I try and explain in much more detail how you get there. And I think in this summary, maybe I'm not doing a very good job, but you do end up with Atlantis starting as something quite innocent and ending up as something really quite sinister. And then the final chapter of the story is how it's now in popular culture and it's fun again. It's sort of fun and light and jolly and we see it in the Aquaman movie. It's in The Little Mermaid and we're all familiar with Atlantis and it's either this fun story that we have in our movies and and pop culture or it's a sort of genre of American and sometimes British documentary television where people in submarines go looking for Atlantis. And Atlantis didn't exist. It's not real. So... There's a really odd thing going on there. That story just keeps changing and every century seems to re-examine it and reflect it, which makes it fascinating. Uh, And there's a fascinating book by um, uh, Dr. Steve Kershaw, who's a classicist, who's written about all of this, about the story of Atlantis and how it's an idea that you can track all the way from Plato trying to win an argument all the way through to the 20th century and and the way it's reinterpreted and and re-understood and takes on this sinister edge. So... So the book is fun in the most part. You know, my book is meant to be sort of quite jolly and quite cheerful, quite accessible. You know, I try and write in a style that anyone could read. But from time to time, I do have to put on my serious hat and go, right, OK, now we're going to talk about something really horrible, which is um, how you end up with essentially, you know, Hydra from the Captain America movies. You know, that, that's sort of a real thing. It's sort of, you know, there really was an institute set up by Himmler in the 1930s to research um, and the archaeologist Gustav Cassina to, to research the kind of ancestral lands of Germanic lands, the fuel lands that tie back to this uh, ancient idea. So sometimes history, conspiracy theories, the role of the public historian is to unfortunately tackle these really hard subjects. And um, quite a lot of my colleagues and friends and so on who do this online get a lot of abuse uh, online and it's a bit a bit worrying putting it in a book but I felt like I probably should and I felt like it's the kind of thing we need to talk about so yeah that's definitely one where trying to put the put the evidence back into the conversation I think. Right and and throughout these questions it, it sounds like they allow you to explore so many different layers and so many different evolutions of of history in popular culture and, and in academia as well um, but we decided for the purposes of this episode so that we don't go on for hours and hours and hours to uh, zero in on on um, a particular section of your your book your questions which is on health um, and so the one that we we thought we'd start with is Asked by Katie, who is who's one of the people who's written in for your book and has asked, did European people really eat ground up mummies? Yeah, so we're kind of familiar in terms of archaeological terms back in the Stone Age of what you might call cannibalism. I, I don't think that word's very politically correct now. Anthropophagy, you know, people eating other humans back in the Stone Age was a thing that happened. And the debate is whether it's ritual excarnation, as in a sort of religious ceremony where the flesh is, is removed from the body or whether it was lunch. You know, people were hungry, they needed to eat. We don't know. But when we do get into the realms of actual historical sources, we can we can see that actually the consumption of fellow human beings has quite a long heritage. It goes back quite far. 
and the Romans did it. They drank gladiator blood. The idea was that someone who died suddenly and violently, uh, their blood would have a certain power. It was used to cure epilepsy. They would grind up bones and drink it as a broth. And there was a sort of relatively long-standing tradition of uh, of mummies, yeah, of uh, ancient Egyptian mummies, whatever we mean by that. You know, the word is a slightly odd word because uh, um, it comes from, I think, the Arabic mumya, which means sort of tar or resin. So in my head, I see, you know, when I see the word mummy, I think of sort of Scooby-Doo villain, you know, wrapped in bandages. But but the word is a little bit more more specific. But certainly there was this long-standing thing in uh, medieval and Renaissance, early modern medicine that the consumption of ancient mummy uh, might restore health and vitality and power. So we have um, Charles II, you know, King of England, eating spirit of skull and various French kings having a sort of pouch of mummy dust on their person in case they got, you know, they went hunting and they got bruised and they'd have some mummy dust. There were a few doctors who said this is crazy, why are we doing this? Ambroise Poiré, I think, is, is a bit cynical about it and he's one of the sort of interesting figures in the early 1500s. But there is definitely this sense that you can absorb the power of another. And in the 17th century, in the 1600s, we have various doctors and, and antiquarians and, and <laughs> people like that saying, you know, moss grown on a human skull can help cure you, or bits of skull powdered in with chocolate can cure you. There's a great book by Dr. Richard Sugg uh, about all of this, actually, uh, and it's really really fascinating read. And it's a really intriguing thing that basically any part of the body was sort of considered to be of medical use i guess there were ethical conundrums sometimes but you know earwax and and blood and and bone marrow and fat um skull shavings all of this could go into medicines if so required and there are various recipes for how to um, terabinthinate i think is the word um you know various bits of mummy skull uh, we also know there was a sort of black market fake mummy marketplace where people were creating fake mummies from recently dead people and then sort of saying, yeah, no, it's ancient. It's absolutely ancient. Don't you worry. So there's enough of a market to actually then stimulate a kind of secondary dodgy black market, which is, it tells us something. And then we also have slightly more intriguing stories that are a bit more further afield. So we have um, Mellified Man. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but that's a story we get from a Chinese writer called Li Xizhen, and he was not talking about China. He was talking about what's happening in the, the Arab world, where supposedly, and I don't know if this is true, but supposedly an elderly man at the end of his life could kind of die a good death by voluntarily just only consuming honey. So drinking and only eating honey, they would then die, presumably of acute diabetes, a sort of sudden surge of sugar in the body. And then they would be buried and dug up a hundred years later on and eaten as medicine. So it's a sort of weird form of organ donation where you turn yourself into medicine and then bury yourself, well, are buried, and then are consumed. Now, whether this is true or not, I do not know, but it's a story that we have, and, you know, I put it in the book in case people want to know this stuff, but it's a reminder, I think, actually, that a lot of our ethical boundaries about, you know, right and wrong, when you look into the history of them, Actually, you know, the, the eating of other human beings has been sort of normal for quite a long time. I'm not sure everyone would have done it, of course, but there may well have been a, a consistent strand within medicine that catered to this. And it does sort of tell you a few things about, you know, where the line is. So 
Yeah, it's it's an intriguing one and and not expected. But, but as I said, there's a great book by Richard Sugg that's worth a read. It's fun. Brilliant. Well, yeah, it definitely makes you think. And, and I guess thinking about that in terms of a remedy then, if, if powdered mummy isn't going to cut it, we've got another great question here um, from Paul, who's asked, what is the strangest um, and on the surface most incredulous medical procedure that turned out to be medically sound? There are a few, actually. And this was a fun one to research because sometimes I'd just be I'd be looking stuff up just to see if I could find anything modern that chimed with what I knew people did in the past. You know, sometimes you start with the past and you look for the modern thing. And then sometimes you start with the modern thing and try and see if there's something in the past that um, resonates. So there's a few in the book. The most obvious one is leeches. You know, whenever you tell kids about leeches, um, they go, yuck. And you kind of go, yeah, I mean, it's gross, right? It's vampire worms. They basically are these sort of little, you know, these little creatures that suck the blood out of you. It's a terrifying gothic image. The myth, of course, is that this is a medieval thing. It's just not medieval at all. It's early modern. It's uh, it's 1500s, 1600s. It's not medieval. But they are in modern use by surgeons. They're, they're brilliant leeches. They, you know, they suck out all the blood and all the necrotic tissue, particularly when you're doing reconstructive surgery. If you're having to reattach a finger, for example, leeches, they've They've got their own little um, painkiller in the when they bite you, so you don't even feel it. It's a you know, it's they're very good. They just look awful. They look evil, but they're actually your friends. So leeches is the obvious starting point. The, f- the, the <laughs> I'm laughing already. Sorry. The comedy one, the obvious joke one uh, that I mentioned on a recent podcast about ancient Roman medicine, is there was a Greek Roman doctor called Pedanius Discorides, I think it was, and he recommended that if you had a prolapsed anus, so obviously bottom problems, the cure was to zap it with an electric fish. So it's what's known as a torpedo fish. It's basically like an electric eel, but a slightly different type. And and yeah, he would sort of say, <laughs> bend over, stand there, and then, you know, a jolt of electricity from from Mother Nature. Because there's no electricity generated in the in the human world, but the animal kingdom produces it. And that obviously is a terrifying image, but also a very funny image from 2000 years distance, safety wise. And I was Googling that, just going, well, this clip, that can't, that, there can't be a modern, surely there's not a modern version of that. And then I found a, a journal article in 2017 in a, a respected uh, medical journal that said, yeah, no, we've, we've, we haven't used the torpedo fish, but we have been zapping patients' bottoms if they have a prolapsed anus. And it helps. It helps restore the muscle strength. It helps tighten things up. It's important for anal incontinence. This stuff works. So <laughs> it's like, oh, fair enough. Well done, ancient Romans. You clearly went the slightly extreme route with the <laughs> using a live fish, but the principle was sound. So, OK. Which also reminds me of um, von Humboldt, sort of the great uh, 18th century explorer who also experimented with electricity. He electrocuted himself. He put a cathode in his anus and an anode in his mouth and shocked himself to see how it felt. So there's a long history of of people putting electricity in their bottoms. The other one, I suppose, that's particularly startling would be... Well, there's two, actually. So the one that was particularly startling, I think, was uh, trepanning or trephination. Again, still a surgical technique used today. If you're in a car crash or whatever and you bang your head horribly and you get swelling on the brain, they have to drill a hole to let some of the pressure out. This was done in the Stone Age. This was done thousands and thousands of years ago. Proper Stone Age, not even Neolithic, but like, you know, people living in cave Stone Age. And the remarkable thing is people survived it. 
So this was discovered by Paul Broca, the French um, scientist in the 1860s, I think. He was really intrigued to find these skulls with holes in them, but the holes had healed, which meant that people had had the therapy, therapy in inverted commas, they'd had the drilling and the skull had healed over, which meant that they hadn't died of post-operative infection and they hadn't died of the trauma of having brain surgery in the Stone Age. So that's kind of one of those ones where you go, wow, that's... I mean, we're, you know, people didn't even have furniture back then, let alone an operating table. And what was interesting in the 19th century is that several surgeons and doctors who were sort of responding to Broca around that same time were saying, well, when we do this, the mortality rate's really high. And yet it seems that these patients in the Stone Age survived, we think. And part of that, of course, is that germ theory hadn't quite reached the hospitals in the 1860s yet. And so doctors were passing on bodily material from autopsies into live patients and then they were operating on three patients in a row and passing on the germs bacteria from one to the next to the next and they were queuing them up and so you then obviously get a horrible um, infection rate because all this material is being passed between patients whereas in the stone age presumably there, there wasn't a queue of people waiting to have their their heads you know drilled i don't know so there is a kind of fascinating what if question there i'm not at all expert enough to sort of do the measurements on it but there is an intriguing thing that it might have been slightly safer to have brain surgery in the stone age than the 19th century i'm not saying that's true but it's a question mark that i'd like someone to answer for me that's quite surprising and the final one and this was a big story that was in the papers a few years ago so people might remember it but a team of uh, medievalists and microbiologists i think it was worked together to basically reconstruct a recipe from a 1,200-year-old medieval medical manual called Bald's Leech Book. And in that was a recipe for curing um, an eyelash infection, you know, if you had a slightly sty eye. Uh, And the team reconstructed it and found it pretty effective. And then they tested it on a few more things. And eventually they tested it on MRSA and it killed MRSA. And it's basically just onion juice. (laughs) in a copper pot it's like it's basically just like some stuff you'd find in the garden in the ninth century but it killed mrsa and there's a sort of really lovely story of the scientists just sending emails back and forth just going what the hell (laughs) what have you sent me um and so that's also one of those ones that just startles you because mrsa is of course an extremely dangerous hospital superbug and people die of it every year and yet there was this extremely simple recipe used by uh, people in early medieval in times uh, 1,200 years ago that clearly had surprising potency. So maybe that means there's other things that we could learn from ancient medical textbooks and, and herbal remedies. I don't know. So uh, those are the ones that surprised me the most, I think. Leeches, everyone knows a bit. But yeah, brain surgery and uh, early medieval potions. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But then, hopefully, they have their curiosity peaked, and you can then say, well, there's this book, and there's this, and try this, you know, podcast, or try this documentary, this computer game. You know, a lot of people get their history these days from video games. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. And, and if we can go, then we'll turn to one that's a bit of a what if question. I know you've got some feelings on what if questions, so perhaps we can <laughs> we can talk about that as well. But um, I just thought it was a, this was a fantastic one um, from Alex, who was asked, apart from the modern age, in which period in history would we have been best able to deal with a zombie causing virus? Yes. And this one, obviously, you can go any direction with it. And because I was a, you know, I used to be a medievalist, these days I'm a bit of everything. But I, my first instinct was to go with Vikings. And I was pretty happy with my answer. And I looked back at it and went, no, yeah, the first instinct is, is that's definitely Vikings. Vikings are the best society to deal with a zombie apocalypse for numerous reasons. And there are possibly other answers out there. I'm not saying this is the best all in. But for me, this is the one I felt the most comfortable with. Because it's an incredibly rural society. 90% of the population were living in you know, the countryside, not in the towns. The towns were very, very small. So the biggest problem with, with zombie uh, epidemics, as we all know, because uh, we're all zombie experts, but the, the R value, you know, we've seen it in a pandemic, sadly, is that when you're in proximate you know, contact with others, things spread very quickly. And in cities, they spread very fast. So the first thing you want is to find a society where the v- majority of people are not in proximity. Secondly... The Vikings have got chainmail. So how does it spread? Well, with biting. So if you're wearing chainmail, that's good. That's teeth don't penetrate that. Vikings would have had weapons, of course. They would have had a society in which boys from the age of twelve or so were starting to be trained, so you can rely on children to fight for you a bit. There's the thralls, who would be the enslaved class, they would have been around to defend as well. Uh women in Viking society seem to be pretty hardy and hardcore, you know. There are fascinating conversations happening at the moment as to whether there were female warriors. Certainly the idea of shield maidens is a sort of big part of of, saga myth and story. You've also got, of course, rivers, lakes, seas, ships, you know, variety of techniques for getting away from the zombies and peppering them from afar with flaming arrows if you need to. You know, it's a it's a silly what if. I mean, I joke in the book that actually it would make for a great movie, you know, zombies versus Vikings. You can sort of see it being quite a lot of fun. But actually... The really fundamental thing about Viking society is, is how really very disparate society was in terms of people organised you know, into very disparate hubs and they would come together for key things. But actually, if there were an outbreak, quite quickly, 
news would spread and people would either be able to get to safety or they'd be able to put together a kind of relief army to come and get them. So it's a ridiculous question and it's a brilliant question. And my answer is both ridiculous and hopefully sensible enough. But yeah, I think that's what really, really matters. You want to be able to slow the spread of the zombie disease while at the same time having a civilization or a society that is equipped to take it on, right? And and the other thing I mentioned is that um, in Norse literature, they have the draucha, which is the undead. They have already an idea of this sort of devilish beast who can who leaps out of the ground and, and has the strength of many men and can do evil magic. And the way you kill them is, of course, decapitation. And how do you kill a zombie in a movie? Decapitation. So they're, they're, all, they're basically already prepped. They've got everything they need. They've got their tools. They've got their farming equipment. They've got their boats. They've got their swords and axes. That's the movie I want to see. I want to see zombies versus Vikings, please. Great answer. And yes, I am definitely down to watch that movie as well. That would be excellent. Um, so that's obviously, that's, that's a really fun answer, a really fun question. Um, there are so many more in the book, but you've also, um, you've mentioned a few throughout, included a recommended reading list for each section too, which gives readers plenty of routes to go down next. Uh, and how important is that for you, that onward journey? Yeah, that's the whole, that's the whole gimmick for me really is that when I wrote my first book, my hope was that there would be people out there who had never read a history book before. But the real hope was that it wouldn't be the last one they read. You know, if, if you succeed as a historian, I think success comes when someone reads your book and then thinks, I want to read another book. I want to develop my knowledge. I want to go further. And my line of work is to engage the public and, and make history accessible and enjoyable and, and relevant and, and not intimidating. And so in everything I do, I try to broaden the subject out enough so that when people come to it for the first time they kind of go oh this is for me okay I wasn't expecting it to be for me but I'm enjoying it okay that's good but then hopefully they have their curiosity peaked and you can then say well there's this book and there's this and try this you know podcast or try this documentary this computer game you know a lot of people get their history these days from video games and there is a really you know, to a certain extent, that's obviously a little bit problematic in some ways because it's play and, and when you're trying to design a game, you're trying to create certain narratives and, and certain sort of, you know, challenges that perhaps are arbitrary and modern. But there's something to be said for Assassin's Creed being a series of games in which you get to explore a world and see the kind of visual, physical landscape as it used to be and walk around buildings that aren't there anymore. So, yeah, a lot of what I do is is hopefully opening the door and then saying keep going you know go that way there's more down the road so the recommended reading at the end is not all the books i read obviously um because that's lots and lots of stuff and some of it's technical and some of it's jargon based and some of it's in academic journals that you can't get hold of so i try and select the books that are easy to read you know cheaply available that people can pick up perhaps second hand or might exist on audio you know, audiobook or or they can look up maybe a historian who might have done a podcast somewhere because we live in a, a fantastic time for the accessibility of knowledge, right? You know, we're doing a podcast right now. I make a podcast for the BBC. They're free to, to listen to. All you need is something that can play them. And so we're really lucky, I think, to live in a time where historians uh, and, and experts can spread their knowledge and can share it and the public can access it. And, um, and there's no... There's no barrier anymore to that. So, you know, I think sometimes that's that's underlooked, I think, a little bit. I think it's one of the things that we should be really excited about. You know, I love Wikipedia. I love what Wikipedia can achieve. And I think we live in a time where, for all the kind of 
panic about conspiracy theories and and Twitter trolls and whatever. We also live in a time where you can go on Twitter and ask a historian from anywhere in the world a question and they'll probably get back to you. You know, I, I certainly do that. I bug them all the time. <laughs> Well, well, I do hope that this, these answers and th- that this podcast and your book does open that door for so many of our listeners. There's a wonderful question that you choose to end your 50 questions on, which is uh, by Anonymous. Um, which people from history would you hire for an Ocean Eleven style heist? This is such a fun question to answer, but it also took me so long because I had so many candidates in my head and <laughs> you're trying to put together a gang of people but also a gang of people that you want to be on a team with. So you don't want anyone like really nasty and violent. So I've, I've discounted Stalin because Stalin had been a bank robber, you know, early on in his career. But he's the kind of guy who shoots everyone at the end of the movie. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to be uh, running around with him. Um, and you don't want someone who's going to get caught by the police, you know, someone who's a bit of an idiot. So I had to rule out Jack Shepard, the um, 18th century celebrity escape artist who kept escaping from prison, but kept getting caught as well, which is not what we're looking for here. So I've gone with a kind of a, a bit of a, an eclectic blend. So the assumption here is that I'm, I'm robbing a casino. So I'm going for a kind of Ocean's Eleven style heist. So you need a brains behind the operation. So I'm going for Mohammed Ibn Amar, who was brilliant chess master. He was a dazzling poet. He was a court administrator. Um, he was uh, basically the chief advisor in uh, the court of Seville to Abed III. And he supposedly, according to a lovely legend, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but supposedly he saved the city of Seville from attack um, from a Christian army by betting the fate of the city on a chess match with the king of Castile, um, Alfonso VI. And he said, look... I will play you at chess and whoever wins gets to ask the other one favour. And of course, the favour he asked was go home with your army. And apparently the King of Spain did. So it's a brilliant story, but but you need a chess master. So we've, we've started with him. Um, in terms of tech guru, who's going to do all the security, I've gone with Su Song, who was a Chinese genius, basically, a thousand years ago, built incredible um, astronomical clocks and various machinery, Obviously, he wouldn't know about Wi-Fi, but he's the kind of person, I reckon, who could figure it out in an afternoon. So uh, he's quite a straightforward uh, choice. I've gone for a diversion, so someone to distract the guards and, and to make a scene. So I've gone with Josephine Baker, not only because she was incredibly glamorous and funny and gorgeous, but also because she was a spy for the French resistance in World War Two, and so is good under pressure. So that's sort of a pretty easy answer. Then you need someone undercover, so a master of disguise. That would be Mary Jane Richards, who famously was an African-American enslaved woman who was liberated and went undercover during the American Civil War in the house of um, the Southern president, the Confederate president, basically, Sir Jefferson Davis, and and she stole secrets from his house without him ever knowing. Um, so you need someone quiet. And, you know, there's there's a temptation to get people who are glamorous and going to you know blow stuff up but I'm looking for quiet individuals who get the job done and then sneak out the back door con artists you always want someone who can you know pull the wool over so George Salmanazar who was an 18th century con artist who convinced everyone he was from uh, Taiwan but he was actually French but he made up an entire language entire religion entire alphabet all sorts of stories and convinced absolutely everybody uh, until he was eventually unmasked Um, so he's a lot of fun then you need a communi- um, communications director. So I've gone for Nancy Wake, who was uh, a New Zealand-born uh, officer in the British SOE in World War II. She was known as the White Mouse. 
The Nazis hated her. Uh, she apparently once karate chopped a Nazi to death, so she sounds pretty hard. But she also cycled several hundred miles across France. She was a radio operator and just a very cool, uh, sort of calm, smart lady. So she sounds good. I need an inside man, someone to be left inside the vault overnight who can then come out. And so that guy, I think, provided he's OK with it, because this is important, uh, Henry Box Brown. So Henry Box Brown was a 19th century celebrity. He'd been born enslaved in America. He had escaped slavery by basically packing himself into a very small box and then being shipped out of the state. Very uncomfortable for, for him. He was only had a, basically had some biscuits in there with him, a little bit of water. Uh, but he became a celebrity and he toured around with his box. He came to the UK and became a famous magician as well. So he's got two skills uh, in that he can do magic and sleight of hand. And also, um, provided he was comfortable, we'd give him a, nicer, a much nicer box, obviously. But we would leave him overnight in the, um, in the vault. You need a safe cracker. So I've gone for an ancient Egyptian tomb robber called Amen Panafa, who was caught uh, a couple of times uh, stealing you know, this is in the Bronze Age, 3,000 years ago. But he was caught by authorities, but bribed the authorities to get away with it. So that's what you're looking for as well, a sort of a cheeky customer who knows how to handle the cops. Uh, and I need a getaway driver. So I'm going with the Roman charioteer Gaius Apuleius Diocles, who was basically, like, remarkable for not dying. Uh, most charioteers were sort of crushed horribly uh, when they smashed into the walls or run over by horses. But he raced thousands of times 4,257 times won many of them and was extremely wealthy and rich and I reckon he'd be you know if not very good behind the wheel but the sounds of it he's lucky you know and you want someone on the team who's just lucky so that would be my team of people who are going to help me rob the casino that is quite the gang. I pity the poor casino <laughs> who decides who's the target of that lot, honestly. And and if I can ask Greg um, what sort of role would you put yourself in in that breakout team? Um, I'm not very good under pressure, so um, may maybe I'd do like the letterheads and stationery. <laughs> like, you know, I'd be in charge of, um, I don't know, email, uh, just, you know, something something behind the scenes just uh, ticking over. Maybe, may maybe visual branding, you know, just give us a good logo or something. <laughs> very important in this day and age. <laughs> Absolutely. You've got to have a look. Um, but no, I'm, I'm not the person you want to rely on for any kind of um, high level breaking into anything. I'm, I can barely put a shelf up. So <laughs> We'll leave it to Josephine Baker and co. Exactly. Precisely. That was Greg Jenner. Ask a historian, 50 surprising answers to things you always wanted to know. It's published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson and is out now. You can also catch up with episodes of Greg's BBC Radio 4 series, You're Dead to Me, via the BBC Sounds app. They've recently covered topics such as the Neolithic Revolution, the history of high heels and the life of Paul Robeson. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in again tomorrow when Irving Finkel will be telling us more about his investigation into ancient Mesopotamian ghosts. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.